I'm just going to move this because I think that fish behind me wants to swallow me. And I... It's one big mouth, isn't it? Yeah, I know. Looks like a guppy, but it's really a shark in disguise. Yeah. Hey, uh, I see Ray and Jackie Boychu back from their honeymoon today. They just got married a couple weeks ago. Why don't you guys stand up so that people can uh, congratulate you? Thanks. Now, I'm glad they're here this morning because I'd like to invite you to think with me about generous marriages this morning. Last week on Father's Day, we talked about generous families. And this morning, I'd like to invite you to think with me about generous husbands and and generous wives. Uh, We've been studying the Bible in the book of Ephesians, which you can find in uh, the Bibles there in the seats on page 978. Uh, But we come to a section in Ephesians where uh, Paul specifically talks about uh, relationships, And he goes through and he talks about, you know, uh, marriage relationships, uh, family, parents and children relationships, uh, boss, slave and master relationships. So it's this application of our Christianity to our relationships. Now, we all have relationships and there are principles, I think, that are appropriate and apply uh, to all of our relationships in terms of how, how being a Christian changes the way we relate to people. And so I'd like to um, point out to you that right before this entire section in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21, there's kind of a general principle that I almost think, from time to time, I think that, you know, the chapter and verse divisions in the Bible uh, are not necessarily ordained by God. They were set up by people after the scriptures were written. And so sometimes I really think that verse 21 should be with the next section instead of the previous section. But anyway, I think verse 21 is kind of a foundation for all of our relationships. Look what it says. Uh, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another. Uh, What is the posture? What is the character of Jesus and his love for people in that he submitted, right, his life in order that we uh, could have the benefits of the gospel? It's an attitude of mutual Submission. It's about sacrifice, not selfishness. It's about giving, not taking. And so there's this kind of general posture among the Christian community uh, that has to do with submitting uh, to one another. It's an attitude. And uh, please notice the second part of that verse says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why do I submit to you? Because you're a better person than me? No, no, no out of reverence for Christ and who I am in Christ. And uh, it's important, I think, for us to understand that this attitude uh, uh, is rooted in our relationship with the Lord. And without that, without that relationship with the Lord, this just doesn't work. And that's what we're seeing in our culture. All over the place, marriages just keep blowing out because in order to have the kind of relationship that God intended, it takes a relationship with God. And it's really the spirit that gives us the understanding, God's spirit, the understanding and the power uh, that enables relationships as God intended them. And I would say exclusively so. If we back up in that uh, passage to verse 18, um, we're told here, uh, don't get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. It's the spirit that gives us the power to understand and to 
enact uh, the kind of relationships that God originally intended. And it's so important to understand that because sometimes we get really frustrated with people who aren't believers and we say, well, what's wrong? Why can't you make this thing work? Well, God is the strength behind it. He's the power behind it, the enabler uh, that enables us to have the fulfilling, happy, meaningful, harmonious relationships that God initially uh, intended. Uh, God is the only one who can enable us to die to sin and come alive to righteousness, to do the right things. And uh, when we entrust ourselves to him, he does that. In uh, James chapter 4, I think the very first verse, uh, James asks a great question. He says, look, what causes quarrels and what causes fights? What causes people to argue anyway? What causes people to not be able to get along with each other? Isn't it this, he says, um, that your passions are at war within you? Oh, wait a minute. You mean it's not the other person's fault? You mean it's my fault? What causes quarrels? What causes people to fight? It's the passions that are at work inside of us uh, that cause the the problem. Hearts full of ourselves instead of the spirit of God. Uh, That's the uh, root of conflict. Notice in um, verse 5 of this passage in James, uh, he asks another question. Do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says God yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us. When we're full of ourselves, instead of full of the spirit, God yearns jealously, like I made my spirit to live in you. Why won't you yield? Why won't you surrender? Why won't you be filled? Why won't you allow me to bless you? Why won't you yield to the spirit that I've made to actually uh, come and dwell inside of you? And it's that spirit, you know, that uh, God has given us. I would say to you that um, in uh, Philippians, we have the classic passage of, uh, in Philippians chapter 2, the classic passage of Jesus' attitude in his relationship to people. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing, nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. What do you think would happen in a marriage if you considered that the other person was more significant than you? doesn't mean that they are. We're all significant in the eyes of God. But if you had the attitude that I'm going to treat my spouse as more significant than me, and I'm going to have that submissive servant kind of mindset toward, what if you had two Christian people married? Shouldn't that marriage be a world of difference compared to the marriages that we find out in the world? And so this is, you know, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Why should I do that? Well, let each of you look not on his own interests, but also on the interests of others, and have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Why should you embrace that submissive attitude? Because that's what Jesus did. And that's the mind of Christ that takes over in our Christian lives. That the goal of God, once we become Christians, is to make us increasingly like the person of Jesus. And so this idea of submitting to one another in verse 21, uh, originally that was a military uh, term. 
Originally, that word came from uh, military use, and the idea was just to rank yourself under. You know, in the military, uh, everybody serves under somebody, right? And you rank yourself under whoever that person, whoever that authority figure is. And that's what this idea of submission really means. It's to arrange yourself under. The idea of that would be to relinquish your rights to another person. When you go in the army, you know, you don't go in there with your rights. I mean, you might go in with your rights, but by the time you come out, you realize you leave your rights there. Because whoever's over you has the right to tell you, you know. They say, all right, we're moving forward. You don't say, well, you know, I don't want to move forward. You just don't do that. And so this is arranging ourselves underneath the authority that God has chosen and relinquishing our rights to somebody. It's to recognize authority as God has set it up. And... Uh, it doesn't mean that other people are better, you know. It's just that God has different roles uh, for all of us. And that submission and responsibility define relationships, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's in a family, whether it's at work, whether it's in church, whether it's, you know, in a mentoring relationship. Uh, it's about um, um, responsibility and submission. And this morning, our passage is about marriage. And so I want to uh, suggest to you as we do this that um, first of all, marriage is a mystery. I love this passage, right? Verse uh, 31 and 32 of Ephesians chapter 5 says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. The mystery of marriage is profound. Okay? And then look what he says. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So here's the Holy Spirit coming forward and saying, let me tell you something about marriage. It's a mystery. <laughs> That's something we probably all know already if we're married, right? Uh, there's a mystery about what in the world makes this guy tick. And what in the world is, makes a woman tick. There's a mystery element to this uh, relationship called marriage. And um, not only that, but I think what, what Paul is telling us and what the Holy Spirit is telling us is that when God made marriage way back in Genesis, when God created Adam and Eve, you know what he had in mind? The church. He had in mind that marriage was going to be an illustration or a prototype uh, of the reality that was going to come when Christ came of Christ and his bride, the church. That's what Paul is saying. This is a mystery. It's a mystery, but when God created marriage, he had in mind uh, the church. He had in mind Christ and the church, Christ as our groom and the church as his bride. Uh, the marriage relationship has been a mystery uh, all the way through the years until God revealed it. Now, when we hear the word mystery, uh, we think, right, something that we don't get, right? That, what's a mystery? It's something that we don't get. It's something that we you know, uh, is baffling to us. It's something that we don't understand. But in the Bible, when uh, the word mystery is used, it's, re it's a reference to a secret that's in the heart of God until he chooses to reveal it. So a mystery in the Bible is, is not something that can't be understood. It's something that God has in his heart that at the right time he chooses to reveal. It's a secret in the heart of God. And so what we're told here in the scriptures is that when God made marriage... He had a secret in his heart that this relationship was going to be the prototype of our relationship with God, the, the living God. And I think um, this is significant um, 
Because it's to the church that God reveals his mysteries, his secrets, if you will. And, uh, you know, once you know the secret of something, it changes the way you live, right? You're out of the dark and into the light. Your level of living goes up a whole grade when you know the secret behind things. And so um, when you think about when you think about it like that, if you turn to uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 9 and 10, for example, um, notice, again, if a secret is something that's hidden in the heart of God until God chooses to reveal it, uh, verse 9 and 10 says that God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth. Let me tell you the secret of the future. Where's everything going? It's a mystery, but God has chosen to reveal it. Since Christ has come, the the secret is this, that in the end, everything, heaven and earth are going to come together. Jesus is going to come back and rule on the earth. You know, and there's all kinds of scripture that we could go through that support this. The new Jerusalem that's being created in heaven, which comes down and hovers over the old Jerusalem. Heaven and earth are going to come together. All things are going to be united in Christ. The only things that are going to survive are the things that are united. To, I mean, there's all kinds of scripture that talk about this. But what Paul is saying here in Ephesians is God has made known the mystery, the secret as to where the future is going. Once you know what's going to happen in the future, think about how it alters your life. If I know that this is what's coming in the future, I know that this is right on the other side, you know, and this is going to be a part of the future. How great is that? Uh, look in uh, Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 2 and 3. Um, Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have already briefly written. The mystery of God's grace. Okay? Uh, It's a secret in the heart of God that's been in place since the beginning of time, but it hasn't been revealed until Christ came, and it's been revealed to the church. What's the, the secret, the mystery of God's grace? You know, for a long time, and still today, many people who are not in on the secret really think that the way to be right with God is by being a good person instead of by grace. This secret of God's grace, of God treating us with undeserved favor instead of us trying to earn our way to God. Most people who don't know the secret of God's grace are still striving to make it with God on their own, you see. But there's a mystery that has been in the heart of God since the beginning of time. God's secret has been revealed. It's not about that. It's about grace. And God gives us this undeserved favor. Look at verses 4 to 6 here in chapter 3. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Another mystery, a truth that's been in the heart of God, but now made known. The mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That Gentiles become a part of the chosen people. It's a mystery in the mind of God. God knew it from the beginning, but at the right time when Christ came, he revealed the fact that you and I as Gentiles, most of us, are uh, become a part of the chosen people of God and we're grafted into, uh, you know, the the nation of Israel, if you will. Paul goes on to explain that in in, in Romans uh, 9, 10, and 11. And uh, the Bible goes, you know, all the way back to... uh, 
in, in Ephesians 5 and marriage, the Bible goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and their creation, all the way back to Genesis, in order to explain the purpose of marriage has to do with our relationship to Christ. It's been hidden for a long, long time. You know, uh, there's no mention of the church in the Old Testament. You can read the Old Testament from cover to cover, you'll not find a single reference to the church. The church and, and our relationship to God through the gospel and through Christ as, as, as the bride of Christ was not revealed until Christ came. It was a secret in the heart of God. He knew what he was going to do. And he set up marriage, okay, to be kind of a prototype so that when the time came, uh, we would get it, we would understand. And so in Ephesians 5 and, and, and verse 31 and 32, you know, um, This mystery, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. And so if you think about this a little bit, um, our passage this morning uh, really reveals to us like the purpose of God in marriage. It's about our relationship to himself. And if we go all the way back to um, Genesis chapter 2, uh, and look at the origin of marriage. I think we have a couple of hints as to uh, how to understand marriage better and how to understand our relationship with God. Uh, the creation uh, of the church and the creation of Eve are parallels. You ever ask yourself the question, you know, why did God create Eve out of something from Adam? Why didn't God just take some more dust like he made Adam and create another person? Why did he take something out of the side of Adam? Some of your Bibles have the translation of a rib. Um, Why did God do that instead of making Eve out of the dust of the earth? Why? Well, because the church is created out of the wounded side of Jesus. The church, you know, is to come forward from the side of Christ. There's suffering, there's pain, there's sacrifice, there's blood in in the origin of both marriage and the church. It was God's secret. Until he was ready to reveal it. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse um, 18 says this. The Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. Okay, I'm going to make a helper fit for him. Okay, so out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called them, the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the heavens, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. There was not found a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up the place Uh, With flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, wowee. Right? Oh, that's not in your version. Well, in my version, that's written in. It's an interpretation of the Hebrew, right? Well, why did God make the church? Didn't God make the church for companionship? A bride, an eternal bride for his son? What is the church? And uh, what is it really for? God is looking for a companion, right, for Adam, and he creates Eve. It's not good to be alone. Two are better than one. So God makes this companion suitable for Adam from his own flesh and blood. And isn't this why God made the church, to be the bride of Christ, to be this companion for eternity? Uh, God made... um, God made this whole spectacular universe, right? And the whole creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the galaxies, 
oceans teeming with life like we're in the middle of this morning, uh, full of beauty, all the animals, flowers, microcosms, you know, cells and atoms. And, but there was nothing in the entire creation that could return God's love to him. There was nothing in the entire creation that could think with God's thoughts. There was nothing in the entire creation that could respond to God in appropriate ways. And so what does the Bible say? God made a person, right? Uh, Chapter 1 and verse 26, 27. Then God said, uh, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let's have some companions who can return our love. Let's, and notice it's us, us, us. It's the Trinitarian God, right? Let's have a, a companion. Let's have somebody who can think like we think. Let, let's have an eternal bride. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. This synergy between a male and a female, this person that God creates that comes out of the side of Christ called his bride. How fantastic are the uh, parallels here? Isn't this why God made us, you know? And uh, somebody uh, who could think, who could respond, uh, made in the likeness of God. In Genesis chapter 2, twice uh, in that passage I read, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a, quote, helper. If you go back and research that word in the Hebrew language, that word has a nuance of a responder. A responder. I'm going to make a responder. I'm going to be the initiator, and God's uh, God's going to create a responder, just like he created uh, uh, Eve to be a responder to Adam, okay? And uh, that's, you know, the church is uh, uh, here to respond to the initiatives of God, a responder, a companion, In verse 20, the same thing. The man gave name to all the livestock and the birds and everything else, but there was not found a helper. There wasn't found a responder. There wasn't found a companion that God could embrace, okay? And so um, it's a great mystery. And uh, Jesus, you know, cherishes the church in Ephesians 5 because it's his own body. It's his body. The church is the body of Christ. We are the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of Christ today. And uh, we are one with him, and he is one with us. And a husband and wife are to be joined together as one. The two become one in in both spirit and soul and body, right? Um, There's no other relationship that can compare to our uh, marriage relationship except our relationship with God, where there is this oneness in spirit and in soul and in body. Uh, The church is the bride of Christ. He's the head, and we are the body. And, uh, you know, he, 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 he doesn't exist without us. We're, we're one forever. If you think about it, uh, you know, there's no savior without the saved. There's no head without the body. There's no shepherd without the sheep. We are bound together in this marriage-like relationship with a father, with a, with a son, with Jesus, you know, who will never leave us or forsake us for all of eternity. And it's this relationship that God intends marriage to mimic, if you will. You know, uh, we are so bound to Jesus that if Jesus wins, we win. If Jesus inherits the universe, we are heirs with him. We inherit the universe when he comes back, right? Um, In baptism, we symbolically, you know, die to our old life without him and rise to this new life with him. 
In communion, we become one with his body in, in, in flesh and blood, symbolically. Marriage was intended to be this prototype of this relationship with God, a, a foreshadowing of the church. And now, since Christ has been revealed, God has revealed this mystery about marriage uh, because now we can get back what God originally intended, at least to some degree, as we go forward with him. And so finally, let me read our text for this morning. Okay, from Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, the first part is addressed to wives. The second part is addressed to husbands. Here's, with that as background, as context, listen to this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why? Because this is a prototype relationship of our relationship to God. Uh, for the husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I think I have a lot of guts to stand up here and just use the word submit, right? Because, you know, I'm like waiting to see somebody's going to shoot me, but... Listen, the very last verse, when there's a summary of this whole thing, verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I want to suggest to you that submission and respect are the same thing. If you don't like the word submission and it sounds subservient to you, use the word respect. Okay? And puts a lot of pressure on a guy to give a woman somebody she can respect. You know why that's so important? Because she's being asked to submit. She wants to submit to somebody that she respects, somebody that she totally trusts. You are being asked as the church to submit to Christ. He's got to be somebody that you totally trust. He's got to be somebody that his word is good. It's got to be somebody that you can put your faith in and have confidence and submit to and give yourself to and yield and go to the Philippines if that's what he wants. But that's got to be somebody you respect, somebody that you can submit yourself to. And in a marriage, in a healthy marriage, when we have this kind of synergy going on, it's really, I don't think, that big of a deal uh, for a, a woman to respect or submit to her husband if he's that kind of a guy. So what kind of guy is he supposed to be? Verse 25. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. You can't love your wife with any old kind of love. If you love your wife like what you grew up with or what the world sees or what you see in the movies or so, that's not, that's not God's plan. Love your wife, look what it says, right? As Christ loved the church. That's a whole different kind of thing, isn't it, than what the world has to offer. You know, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. It's a sacrificial kind of love. If you're not willing to sacrifice, you're not willing to play the role that God has assigned that follows the person of Christ, okay? That he might sanctify her. That he might sanctify her. You know, we talk about discipleship. We talk about mentoring and so forth. Part of the husband's role is to do what he can to bring his wife along into that relationship with God. That he might sanctify her. How's he going to do that? Having cleansed her by a washing of water with the word. A good husband is not somebody who's just running around saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. But he's saying, how can I help this to get right? It's pretty easy to go around and just point out what's wrong. But it's pretty hard to say, what does the word of God have to say about how to deal with this so that we can make it right? 
sanctifying her through the word, right? Taking that lead and saying, I'm going to find out from God how to deal with this and, and, and so forth. A, a, a good husband's not satisfied with wrongdoing. When something's wrong, he's not just going to live with it. He's going to say, what do we have to do? What does God have to say? So that what? He might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. A husband wants a perfect wife. And uh, he contributes to that, right, and, and, and works for that and so forth. And look, uh, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Why? Because the church is Christ's body. And so husbands should love their wives in the same way that they love their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. If, she's, if you're one with her in body and she's your body, her body's your body, your body's her body, like Paul says in Corinthians and so on, uh, our, we should love our wives like we love ourselves. He who loves his wife loves himself, for nobody ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, cherishes it. Most guys that I know love to eat, right? They take care of their bodies that way. And, and just as Christ does the church, Christ is always feeding the church, always there to nourish and to care for and to do what he can, you know, in order that we might grow and become pure and, and be ready to live in heaven with him because we're members of his body, verse 30. We are members of his body. We are united as one. Uh, and therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. To th- Where's that coming from? Well, that's what's been around since day one. And it's all to be an illustration of the relationship that God is providing for us. Marriage is about two people becoming one in response to each other through submission uh, and love or respect and uh, responsibility. God made each of us you know, as three-part beings. We all have a spirit, a soul, and a body, okay? And with our spirits, we connect with God because God is spirit. In fact, you are spirit, and you have a soul, and you temporarily live in a body, right? We're made in the image and likeness of God. God is spirit. We are a spirit. We have a soul, and we live temporarily in a body. We have three parts to our living, And it's with our spirits that we connect with God. In fact, the Bible says, until you're devoted to Jesus Christ, your spirit's dead. It's when we become Christians that God puts his spirit in our dead spirit and brings it to life. See, you can't really have a marriage the way God intends it without being devoted to Christ. You can't because your spirit won't. And your spirit is the foundation for a oneness of soul and a oneness of body. Uh, we, We... The only way that I think we can be one in spirit is when we're committed to Christ. Devotion uh, is about uh, living your life for somebody else. Isn't that what devotion is? Devotion is about living your life for somebody else. If you're devoted to Christ, what does that mean? That's what we talk about when we talk about pursuing a God-first life. It means being devoted to God. What does that mean? It means I'm going to live my life for him rather than for me. I'm going to defer to him. That's what devotion means. And so when you get in a marriage and you're devoted to one another, what are we talking about? We're talking about two people who are going to live their lives for each other. But you can't do that unless your spirits are one. And that's why young people don't marry an unbeliever. That's why the Bible warns you. Listen, if you marry an unbeliever, you'll never have a a, a oneness of spirit. And the oneness of spirit is the basis or the foundation for a oneness of soul. Your soul is your thoughts, feelings, and decisions. Right? It's that kind of non-material part of you. 
And uh, your soul hangs in the balance between your spirit and your body. With our bodies, we connect to the world. What we hear, smell, see, touch, you know, uh, feel. Uh, our bodies enable us to be connected to the world in which we live. But the Bible tells us that the small g God of this world has the influence over the world. And so our souls hang in the balance between our body connected to the world and our spirits connected to God. And your soul, your thoughts, feelings, and decisions will either be influenced by the spirit of God or by uh, the spirit of the God of this world. And so how you think, how you feel, the way you make decisions hangs in that balance between being connected to God and connected to the world. And in a marriage, when we have a oneness of spirit, we can begin to have a oneness of soul. We can start to think like each other. We can compromise. We can start to uh, feel good about each other and so forth. And and we can start to make decisions together instead of uh, going in separate ways. But it's only by faith in Christ that that spirit oneness comes about. Um, And so uh, husbands and wives being led by God's spirit enables what uh, God intended. And that's why the Bible, I think, does warn us, you know, don't get married to somebody who's not a believer. And I think it's, you know, I've learned over the years, it's not just a believer, but a believer of the same caliber or the same level of discipleship. Because if you're a believer and you marry a brand new believer, you've still got a long ways to go to get, you know, up to the, uh, having that oneness of soul and uh, that oneness of body. In James, uh, again, in James chapter 4 and uh, verse 12, it's kind of in the same section here about what causes conflict and problems and so forth. Uh, James says this, there's only one lawgiver. There's only one person who sets up how to do this, uh, what's right and what's wrong. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? There's one lawgiver, God. You know, there is no right and wrong apart from God. Have you noticed that? There is no right and wrong apart from an appeal to God. He's the judge. He's the lawgiver. So we're trying to, you know, we live in a culture that's trying to redefine what's right and wrong. We live today in a a period of time where what used to be wrong is now right, right? And it's our rights. And what used to be right is now wrong to stand up for anything or to, you know, take a stand for the truth and for for God. And so uh, I think we have a a lot of problems with uh, people, Christians, being unwilling to witness because we live in a world that's so far that, you know, the whole idea of salvation is just foreign to people. Until, until we come back to God's word, it's hard for people to even see why it's an issue. And so uh, God calls for this mutual submission, and out of that mutual submission, this devotion to one another, that's his standard. And he's the one who's uh, set up marriage. He's the one who made us male and female. And so oneness of the soul happens when we share our thoughts, our feelings, you know, our dreams, our, our ideas for the future. And uh, I want to say to you that in the divine design of things, if we have a spirit, a soul, and a body, it seems to me that um, oneness at the soul level is a need and a preoccupation of most women. Most women are very interested in their marriage to have a oneness of soul. Most men are very interested and most needy of a oneness of body. There's a difference between men and women. And one of the things that frustrates me about uh, pushing the homosexual agenda is uh, blurring the lines of the way God made us male and female and the roles that God intended for us to embrace. 
And we lose that, and it all gets kind of gray. But this physical oneness is important. And um, in his book, uh, His Needs, Her Needs, which I make every couple I marry read, uh, a guy by the name of Harley has uh, written this book, and he talks about the fact that a woman needs affection and needs you know, intimate conversation. She needs to be able to trust totally, and she needs to, because she's being asked to submit. And so at the soul level, honesty and openness is like crucial. If you're not honest, if you're dishonest, you can't build a marriage. If you thought that Jesus was lying to us, you couldn't entrust yourself to him completely. And so in a marriage that reflects that relationship, honesty and openness, you know, give your cell phone and your PIN number to your spouse. I can't tell you how many times, you know, spouses have sort of figured out what the PIN number is, gone on the phone, found things that were offensive, and boom, it's like a volcano, everything blows apart. Honesty is so important. Openness about our activities, about our finances, about our feelings, our past, our dreams about the future. A woman needs to feel secure at a soul level. She needs to be cared for. And so husbands, part of this mutual submission is us providing that kind of atmosphere where there's a sense of security and and being cared for and so forth. It's part of that mutual submission that God intended. And uh, you notice as we went through, the husband's kind of love is to be reflective of Christ's kind of love. Uh, 1 Corinthians six seventeen says, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And that's, that's what we're looking for in a marriage is uh, through God's ability and through uh, the spirit's presence in our life. And then you'll notice in uh, verse 31, I would say that... Um, I would say that the marriage relationship is to be permanent. It's to be an unbreakable relationship. It's not that there won't be problems that come along and challenges. But notice, uh, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. Not hold loosely, not hold conditionally, hold fast. Hold on. I will never leave you or forsake you, Jesus says. He's going to hold fast to us. Nobody can take her out of my hand, Jesus said. My church, my bride, right? Uh, It's to be a permanent relationship. This mystery is profound. It's a mystery. Uh, There's an element of mystery to it. It was designed from the beginning uh, to be a picture of life with God. And since Christ came, that possibility to retrieve or to restore what God intended in our marriages is possible. And so it's the church's privilege. It's the church that knows the secret that makes a marriage really work. It's the church that God has revealed the mystery of uh, the, way, the reason behind and the way that it works, the secret in God's heart that's now uh, been revealed, uh, but only to the church, only to the people who really believe it. And it's the secret to really having a great marriage. Uh, the world's people could never figure this out on their own. And so, you know, today we have all kinds of speculation. We have all kinds of efforts to make sex take the place of God. And we think if we could just have these alternative lifestyles that somehow we would find a satisfying, meaningful relationship with one another. It's impossible apart from the spirit of God and reconciliation to Christ. The the world's people will never be able to figure that out. Listen, in the end, remember in Ephesians 1, verse 9 and 10, in the end, everything that's going to exist finds its coming together in Christ. And apart from Christ, nothing will exist. Apart from being properly related to Christ, that's the future that God has revealed for us. Your marriage is intended to be this living demonstration of our relationship with God, a relationship of complete faith and trust in him 
as we experience, you know, the unconditional, grace-filled, sacrificial love uh, that God first gives us. Our response, our responsibility. Um, And again, I would say to you in Ephesians 5, I love that last verse. It says, each one of you should love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Love and respect. It's a great book called Love and Respect as well that talks about the difference between what a spouse needs, what a husband needs, and what a wife needs. If you don't like the word submission, embrace the idea of respect, and you'll get to the same destination. What a great passage of scripture. What is lost? What a great evangelistic message to people who are struggling in their marriage today. I know the secret that God has revealed about how to make the marriage work and to be a blessing in our life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're again so thankful for the Bible, and I'm thankful, Father, for this idea of a mystery, that from the beginning you had everything worked out in your mind. You, you, just, you think about everything, and, uh, and yet you don't reveal certain things until it's time. And since Christ, you've made known, Father, the mystery of marriage, and so many people miss it. And we've got such uh, wacky ideas today, Father, about how to pursue a marriage relationship, missing completely your intention, your purpose, and the meaning uh, that you've injected into this relationship. And so I pray you would equip us and you would help us to be winsome and find ways, Father, to speak into people's lives that bring back this great notion of uh, having our marriages reflect the very relationship at the core of our being, our relationship with the living God. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to ask our ushers now if they'd come and uh, wait on us. And uh, while they're doing that, I just wanted to share with you that uh, a special occasion today, uh, after the second service, uh, you're all invited to a graduation party for Joseph. You remember Becky's son, Joseph, who was in a terrible car accident right out in front of church here? And uh, there was a period of time where we weren't sure he was going to make it. Well, he graduated high school. And it's a, it's a major accomplishment. So... Uh, you're all invited after the second service to come on down to the gathering hall and, uh, you know, congratulate him and celebrate with him.